First John chapter 1, we'll read through chapter 2, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, let's turn our hearts to the Lord and seek him together. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we thank you for the things that you've explained in Scripture. We thank you for the displays of yourself in the person of your Son. We come this morning to lay our praises before your throne, the throne of the eternal God and of the Lamb. We come to say to you, God, that we are a people who are needy, as needy now as we've ever been. We are a people who... Many of us have tasted your kindness and seen that you are good. And we are grateful, but God, our gratitude is less than it ought to be. Our devotion is too often cool or indifferent. Our pace is sluggish, but his was not. And we look to him for our righteousness, his prayer life, his singing of the Psalms, his worship, his love of his brothers and sisters and honoring his mother and stepfather, his work ethic, his response to your word, every area of the human life, perfectly devoted, happily consecrated to you through our Lord. We thank you for the righteousness that he provides. We thank you for the example that we don't just follow a book, but we see that book clothed in a human life. We thank you for the path of the scriptures, your commands, your principles, coming to us from every angle, explaining how to live unto you, with you, by you. But we're grateful that Christ joins us on that path every day. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your purity again. 
We pray that you would open our eyes to see the extraordinary privilege of being a people that belongs that belong to a God that John can say we saw him. We handled him with our hands. He the eternal life with you before creation manifested in time. We thank you that we can have fellowship with you through the finished work of your son and that does not require you to be one less bit pure. You still are the God who is light in whom there is no darkness. You still hate darkness with an infinite hatred. You still grieve over the darkness that we sometimes embrace. And yet you make a way for your stumbling disciples to come into the light before you and to be made clean again. So we ask God that you would fill us with such a hope in his sufficiency that we would run the, pa- the race at a pace that we have not run in a long time. That we would not let ourselves shift into neutral, but to really move forward. That all of life might be brought under that sweet plow of Christ and produce a harvest of likeness to him. And we ask that for us here, but God also for the churches down the street and the families across this world. Names that we may never know in this life, places we may never hear about, languages we could not understand, but you know them from eternity. And so we ask that you would turn your face toward a people this day all across this globe who meet you at the mercy seat and make them strong and show them your love for the sake of your son's reputation. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we are returning again to the theme of uh, discipleship. And when we look at that, maybe one way to think about that is to ask ourselves um, a simple question. What are, uh, what are God's priorities in church? There would be a number of answers that are appropriate. One of the priorities that we see in what God is doing uh, throughout the ages is that God is much more interested in disciples than in converts, if, if you can let me say it that way. It does not bring honor to Christ for a person to be brought to kind of an emotional decision and they decide to accept Christ, but then the rest of life is still devoted to self, you know, unaltered, or as A.W. Tozer said, um, unjarred, you know, not shaken by the realities of Christ. And you just kind of, you know... The conversion is a little blip on the screen and then you continue on in life, maybe a little cleaner on the outside, using different languages, you know, uh, language than you did before and um, and going to Bible studies and attending church, but not really altered. God is much more interested in the disciple. That is all of life being brought under the authoritative apprenticeship of Christ, where he fashions us, where he becomes our teacher and our example. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at passages that describe the life of a disciple, and we will talk about the path 
or the, you know, the expectations of Christ in, in more practical ways in the coming weeks when we look at the path of the disciple. But we've been trying to kind of prepare ourselves for that by recognizing that every time any of us, unbeliever or believer, is confronted with the passages in Scripture where Jesus Christ himself describes what it looks like to follow him, to be discipled, mentored, apprenticed to him. When we read those passages, there are always two prominent wrong responses that are right there, and they will seem very reasonable. And if you accept either of these, then following Christ for you is... Um, is not an issue. It's not an option. One wrong response is for you to read the passages where Christ describes the life of a disciple. And when you look at that, you think, well, that, that's not for us. Not, not today. That was for them back then. That's for the disciples, you know, the 12 minus Judas and add another. And then, of course, you throw in a Paul and book of Acts. And well, that's the first century Christianity. That's the leaders of that. One of the reasons that might appeal to us is that, uh, you know, the standard that Christ sets is quite shockingly high. It's not in line with cultural Christianity. But another reason is that it, it might seem very foreign to you. You read these passages where Christ talks about, you know, go into all the world and to Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea, all the world, you know, and you think, well, I'm not in Jerusalem or Samaria or Judea. And, you know, you're you kind of go back to those Sunday school pictures in your mind where you see uh, people in bathrobes, you know, and gathering around Jesus. And you think, well, that's just so, so far detached from my modern life. I'm not sure how you could expect me to follow him. Well, when he says that we are to follow him or be discipled by him, he's really talking about in the ways that he responded to the Father and responded to people around him. How did he live a life of happy obedience? And we will talk about that in coming days. Another, though, another wrong response to these passages, it seems a little more noble. It's that instead of disregarding those passages, not taking them seriously, you take them very seriously, but because you take them seriously and then you look in the spiritual mirror and you say, that... The life of a disciple is a wonderful thing, but it's not for me. It's for other types of Christians. I don't think I could ever really say that I would be willing to follow Christ like that. Or I don't think that I would be able to, no matter how much I wanted to. I mean, I've demonstrated it so many times. A Christian can look back and see at the stumbling of your own life. And when you read the words of Christ, it may seem that that's too spiritual a life. If that's, your, if that's your response to these passages, then everything that we look at in the coming weeks will be of no value to you. you. You just kind of step back. I think we probably all have at least felt the temptation to do that. It's not that you become an atheist. It's not that you, you know, drop church from your calendar or never read your Bible again. It's just that there is this unspoken understanding in your soul that you will step back from what the scripture says about the Christian and you will no longer expect that that's for you for whatever reason. And then when you're part of a church, you kind of just blend into the edges 
you know, kind of into the, 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 the corners of a room. And sometimes it's even physical. I'm often amazed at it's not always the case. So if you're sitting in the corner right now, Trey McCoy sitting in a corner. I'm not talking about you, Trey. But it's oftentimes the case that physically we do this. We feel like I'm not really one of them. I'm not one of the group that sits up front and it's really earnest. So I just kind of move to the back where things are more comfortable. I wonder if either of those is paralyzing you when it comes to reading the passages where Christ describes how the disciple is to follow him, how the Christian is to follow him. If you're tempted to believe the second, which means your heart longs to follow him, it's the heart of the believer, but you fear and doubt looking at yourself, that you could really follow him. I have mentioned three tools or weapons you can use to put that second lie to death. This is for other Christians, but because of my circumstances, because of my temperament, because of my past, because of my, my, my you know, st- present struggles, I don't think that I could really be discipled by Jesus today. So there are three ways to put that to death, and we've looked at one of them and started to use the second one. The first one is you can look at all that God does to make you a Christian. Just go back and get the measure of a Christian by what God does instead of getting the measure of a Christian by how well you're doing today, you know, here or way down there. Because if that really is what the triune God has accomplished for you, not for people in general, for you, then I think that that goes a long way to putting to death the lie that you could not really be a disciple. Second tool or weapon against this lie that it's a great life, but it's not for you, is that you can look at the sufficiency of the discipler. So think of yourself as a pupil or as an apprenticed person. You may be a really poor student. Even if you try really hard, you may just say, Books don't come easy to me. But if you had the perfect teacher in whatever field, if you had God to teach you, do you not think that you could put to death the lie that you couldn't learn? When it comes to being an apprentice to Christ, if you had the perfect Christian, if you had Paul, who was imperfect, but let, you know he's kind of our pinnacle, if you had the apostle Paul, Suddenly he joins our church this week and he becomes one of the ministers and he becomes the minister of discipleship. And he says to you, he says to to Barry Steele, Barry, I'd like to disciple you. Everybody would be so envious of Barry. Why doesn't Paul disciple me? I need discipled. And Barry would probably think I'm going to be such a better Christian at the end of this journey because I've got Paul. If you could see the sufficiency of And the excellence of the God-man who has given you his spirit to teach and to disciple. If you could see all the infinite perfections of God, not just purity, but wisdom and ability at work discipling you. Could you not lay to death this morning, at least, the lie that you couldn't really be a follower? I mean, you could be a church member. Not a disciple. 
A third way to deal with this lie is to look at what the scripture actually says the life of a Christian is. What is the life of a disciple? It is not Hudson Taylor or Robert Murray McShane or Jonathan Edwards or Amy Carmichael necessarily. That was God's path for them. But what is God's path for you? And I think you will find it is not only the happiest life, it is the most practical. And it is, it is not just wonderful and supernatural. It is doable because of the work of God within you. Well, we're in the middle of looking at that second tool, that second weapon, looking at the sufficiency of Christ. Last week, we looked at the fact that Christ is sufficient because Paul says that God has made him to be your wisdom. And certainly the Christian needs that. That's how the Christian life begins. Christ opens our eyes. We suddenly understand what we've been reading or hearing for years. We turn away from all the empty lies of religion, of morality, and the empty lies of sin and momentary pleasure. And we run to the cross. We understand the gospel. We understand the fullness of what we deserve contrasted with the fullness of what he's given. And with that eye-opening we embrace all that we know of Christ. Christ is your wisdom, but we need that to continue, don't we? For God to continue to instruct us, to show us the difference between religion and Christianity, the difference between, you know, conservatism and Christ. We also looked last week at the fact that Christ can be our disciple. Is he worth risking everything for? Can he be enough? To disciple you. Well, yes. Because his atonement. Is an infinite payment. And no matter how dark my sins were. They have been washed. At the cross. And his perfect obedience. Provides a clothing. So that I am right. With God. Looking all through me. Even though there's imperfection. My position in his family, my citizenship in his kingdom is forever settled when I am in Christ. And we looked finally last week at the fact that Christ is sufficient to not just wash us or open our eyes, but to attract our hearts and keep them. Now, those are wonderful things, but if we stop there, I think that everybody in this room would have to say, if I take the scripture seriously, that is not enough for him to be my discipler. I need more than that. So I want us to pick up this morning and look at another thing. And then next week we'll try to look at a few more. And we probably will have two more weeks on this topic. But I never know. All right. This week I want us to look at the fact that Christ is perfectly willing to pardon and restore you. Now if I don't take my jacket off, then the air conditioner is going down to 62. And you probably wouldn't like that. Okay. So jacket off. Is Christ capable in dealing with a disciple? Is he capable of being entrusted with the lifelong application of pardon to you? Not just is he willing to pardon you when you come to him for the very first time. Normally that's how we think of the cross. The gospel goes out. The unbeliever hears it. He is called from darkness to light, from death to life, from unbelief to belief, from self, self-centeredness to repentance and turning toward Christ. And we think, what a wonderful thing the cross is, that, that infinite payment, that atoning death. Yes, but there is something more that a Christian needs 
If we're to believe that we could be a disciple, we need to know that Christ has an infinite willingness to pardon every believer, every day, every hour, every sin. And that your sins, which still provoke him, still grieve him, that they do not cause him to turn away from you. Last week, he's sufficient to atone to pay for our shame and guilt and remove that. This week, is there a willingness, an infinite disposition of mercy and pity in the Lord Jesus for his followers throughout the rest of their life when they stumble? Doubts like this can be crippling because... Uh, I think that as a Christian, we see that we see sin in a different light. If you think about it, I, I, I think at age 53 that answering this question is harder than it was for me at age 23 when I just had become a Christian. At age 23, if someone would have said, can Christ's sins, uh, can Christ's righteousness pardon your sins? Is Christ willing to pardon your sins. Throughout the rest of your journey, I would have said, well, yes. But that's because I think partly I thought with a few good years under my belt, I'll probably be pretty much fully sanctified by 25, you know. At age 53, it's harder to answer that question. Can I be a disciple of Jesus Christ? John Snyder. Well, I'm going to need a discipler who didn't just forgive me back there but who possesses this willingness to apply that forgiveness and pardon me day by day and restore me day by day when I do still sin against him or when I drift, walk off the path or stumble. Does he get tired of coming after the believer who drifts? Does he get weary of bending over and picking you up and dusting you off again? Will he ever, in that journey, when our sins provoke him, will he ever say, enough, that's enough. I, I, I will not gladly, willingly pardon you again. For the Christian, the list of sins in your life after you became a Christian may end up growing in your understanding, to be more than before you were a Christian, especially if you were converted when you were young. Most of the sins that I remember are sins that I have committed since age 20. And when you see that list of sins grow in your mind, and you've taken them to the Savior, it can be very easy to believe the lie of the enemy that Christ is not sufficient. He will not possess an infinite willingness to pardon of course, as a believer, you do see sin differently. It's no longer just that, well, okay, I blew it. But that kind of language goes out the door. Okay, well, I wasn't perfect or I should have done better. But now the language is different because now you've been forgiven. 
and looking at the cross of Christ and the grave of Christ and the throne that's occupied by Christ and considering the things we've been considering in John Owen's book about communion with the Father and with the Son and now with the Spirit, the adoption into his family, the privileges that I now have and the curses that I've been delivered from. I don't belong to the old family any longer. I cannot be legally attached to what they're doing. But now I'm legally attached to the family of Christ. And I have all the privileges that I would have had had I been born into it naturally. And I see all of that and then I see stumbling and indifference. And it's very different to me now than it was before I was a Christian. And I see pride and selfishness. That's very different. Unbelief. It's very different. So seeing sin differently, it's easy to say to yourself, I don't know that Christ would really be willing to continue to forgive me. I mean, I see sin for what it is more now than I used to. Let me give you one other thing that makes it difficult to answer that question. And that is, as you mature as a believer, you also see things more clearly because you're an older Christian. You understand things as you've matured. And you look back and you see that there were things in your life that were wrong or sinful that years ago that you didn't even recognize as wrong or sinful because you didn't understand maybe what the scripture said about it. And so your conscience was clear, but it was still a sin. You weren't willingly choosing sin, but it was still a sin. It still grieved your God. And so as you see sin differently and as the sins after conversion begin to increase in number, you also realize that there are things that I may be doing right now that, dis, that God disapproves of and I, I do not yet know. And how can God, how can the Son of God be my discipler if I'm so constantly provoking Him? Sometimes not even aware. So for the Christian, I think it's quite a, an important state question to answer. Have you forfeited the chance to be a true disciple of Christ? Because you have continued to provoke him. Or is he sufficient in his mercy. And his infinite willingness. To again apply pardon. That you can really be discipled. By him. Well I want us to look at one thing this morning. And I. Uh, well look at this, at this willingness to pardon. We'll save other things for next week. But. Let me give you a few passages that answer that question. Let's start in the Old Testament. And if you would, turn with me to Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is a psalm that if you've been at church very long, or if you've read your Bible, you will recognize it. Because it's one of those psalms that's unusual because it repeats a phrase at the end of each verse. And the phrase it repeats is this. For his loving kindness... Is everlasting. Good place to start if we want to know is Christ sufficient to continue to patiently restore me and forgive me? Now, in the Hebrew, the word loving kindness, that's the New American Standard translation, can be translated in a number of different ways. I've mentioned to you before, Chuck has probably mentioned it, that this is a word that's very difficult to translate into English. So basically, what we do is we kind of give um, paraphrases, so loving kindness, two words, we smush them together. Or the ESV, I think, has steadfast love, another paraphrase, 
kind of amplify it, use a few words, a couple of words to try to capture it. New, uh, the New King James says mercies. It, all of those are fine translations. It, we just need to understand that when it's talking about this kind of pity and compassion, this expression of God's uh, astonishing love for his people, it is only used of that covenant kind of love, that contractual love. He has a steadfast love that endures forever. And here I think steadfast love would be the best translation. It opens with the verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He is morally pure and he is benevolent. And that is expressed in this, for his loving kindness or his steadfast love or his mercies endure forever or they are everlasting. Then what follows is... Uh, the first third of that psalm talks about God as creator. All aspects of creation are an expression of this steadfast love that just keeps going on. And then in verse 10 down to verse 22, we find another theme, and that is God's steadfast love is demonstrated in the way he rescues his people from their enemies. And then in verse 23 to the end, you have the summary. Who remembered us, God, who remembered us in our low estate. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And has rescued us from our adversaries. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who gives food to all flesh. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to God, to the God of heaven. For his loving kindness is everlasting. So we could just start there. As we tried to answer the question. Is Christ sufficient to continue to pardon me when I continue to provoke him? There is a steadfast love in the nature of the divine being. And Jesus of Nazareth, being God and man, possesses fully and identically and eternally and unalterably the same perfections, the fullness of that divine nature as Father and Spirit. The God-man possesses the character or the nature of the, of the God that is spoken about here. He is, as well as the Father and the, and the Spirit, one who is lovingly kind or steadfastly loving. And his love endures forever, whether you are surrounded by enemies or whether you are in a low estate. Jump over to Psalm 138. In Psalm 138... Verse 8 speaks again of this steadfast love, these mercies or these loving kindnesses. Verse 8 says, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me, what his plans for me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. That's why the writer knows that God will not stop halfway. Because the steadfast love of God is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. It's a wonderful psalm for a couple of reasons. One is this. It, it speaks of God in his majesty. Look at verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, though he is on a throne, you know, over all creation, yet he regards the lowly. So if as a believer you think, but as I stumble along, how can the infinite God-man 
who now is enthroned in heaven and no longer walking on the dusty streets of Jerusalem, how could he have any time or concern for a person like me? How could he even notice my ups and downs of the day? And the, the, the transcendence of Christ sometimes is used by the enemy to whisper into our ears that he probably doesn't notice what's going on. But that's a lie. Psalm 138. For though Christ, we could say, Though the Son of God is now exalted, yet he regards the lowly, the unimportant, like us. And verse 8, he will accomplish what concerns me, what he has planned. His loving kindness, his steadfast love is everlasting. Another reason I find this so uh, encouraging, not only because verse 8 speaks specifically of God doing what he said he would do for the believer, but it is David that writes it. And of all of our favorite Old Testament characters, if there was any godly person that great promises were made to, who, after horrific sin, we would expect in writing a a psalm to God, might say, Oh God, I know that you said wonderful things to me, and your love was amazing. It was an amazing grace, but I don't know if you'll finish And keep your word to me because what I have done to you. But David, the murderer and adulterer and hypocrite, when he's finally confronted and repents, turns his face back to the God that hates all that he has done and finds a steadfast love, forgiving and disciplining and restoring. God will finish all that he's promised to do in you, Christian. Because his steadfast love endures. And your stumbling will not contradict that. And the fact that he is on a heavenly throne will not make him indifferent. Well, let me give you another example. And turn to John chapter 13. We see this now in the person of Jesus specifically. And verse 1, and this is one of my favorite verses in all the book of John. Because of... uh, My own experience with the verse, not just what it says. John 13, 1. So this is the night that he's arrested and taken to be tried and then crucified the next day. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, knowing the cross is there right in front of him. So with that in front of him. That he would depart out of the world, of this world, to the Father, having loved his own, his disciples, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There was a a time, I mean, they're not that rare in my life, unfortunately, but there, it must have been probably 15 years ago, and um, I, I just could see no reason for God to continue to love John Snyder, and I, you know, and you can lay a lot of really convincing sounding arguments in front of God and say that he should become indifferent. We become indifferent. Why, why should he not? So, you know, in that kind of trap of despair, you just throw the Christian life into neutral. And while you still go to church, I still preach. There was a real struggle in my heart to think that God would keep his word to me at all. Would I be able to really be a disciple or would I just be 
kind of a B-class citizen. I mean, I certainly had earned B-class citizenship. So why hope that these New Testament descriptions of the Christian's life would really be mine? During that time, I was reading through the Gospel of John, and I came to chapter 13, and there's a wonderful book written by a friend of Robert Murray McShane that we've mentioned before. In the 1830s, 1840s in Scotland, a man named Charles Ross wrote a little commentary on John 13 through the end of John 17, worth its weight in gold, called the Inner Sanctuary, like the Holy of Holies, because it covers those chapters where Christ just has the 11 now, Judas has gone to betray him, and with just the 11, he really opens his heart and says things in John 13 through 17 that we don't see anywhere else. And in John 13, 1, Ross points out that Christ, even though the cross is right there, is still practically, actively loving his disciples. And then he points out the description of the disciples, those who were his own in the world. And he spends some time on that and basically says, we would not be surprised if the scripture said that Christ loves and delights in his people who are now in heaven. The Old Testament saints that have already run their course or New Testament believers who have believed and then passed away by this time. It's not hard for us to imagine that Christ delights to love and, and to treasure the saints that are now what we call the church victorious. No more sin is possible. Why does the scripture say he delights or loves to the utmost, to the end, those that are in the world? Maybe because those that are in the world, since we, every one of them is still capable of sin, capable of provoking him, we need to know that it, he even delights in us. Everyone that John 13, 1 mentions, every disciple loved by Christ is one that is still a sinner, struggling, learning, walking, growing, imperfect. And he loves them. Let's look at another passage. John chapter 6, verse 37. We might say, well, I know that Christ's infinite payment on the cross removes all penalty that the law had placed against me because he suffered the penalty, the death, and that atonement is complete. But you might not be so sure that he is willing to day after day apply that and to restore you. Look at John 6, verse 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Wonderful passage. I just want to point out one thing. He doesn't say this. All that the Father gives me, I will let enter. I'll open the door to them. They come. Christ, I believe you. I turn from the lies. I, I, I embrace 
the gospel promises. That's my only hope. And he lets them in. But he doesn't say, I let them in. He says, I, I'll never cast them out. It's not only that when the father entrusts the son with a soul, does the son willingly embrace that as a gift from the father. It's that the son will do everything required so that soul will never be cast out. Do you think of this only in contractual words like, well, the son is faithful and the father is faithful? Are these only the cold words of faithfulness? Do you not see the love of the heart of God even for his enemies in there? And not a love that just works at conversion, but a love that has hounded you and followed you and tailed you and preceded you and surrounded you every moment since you came to Christ? Giving is a loving word. The father giving the son. It is an expression of the father's everlasting love for the son. That he gave him you, Christian. And it is an expression of the son's gratitude and love to the father. That he keeps you, Christian. If John 13 and John 6 and Psalm 138 and 136 aren't enough... Think of the small statement that Christ made to Peter. Peter, who was always, you know, out there in front of everybody else with the big mouth and the self-confident, you know, braggadociousness. And Peter always putting his foot in his mouth. But think of Peter. And what if you could meet Peter after the resurrection and after Christ restored him and after the crucifixion where he denied him? Judas, of course, betrayed him, but Peter denied him. Three times, aren't you one of those people that belongs to him? I don't know who you're talking about. You're crazy. I'm not with him. If you were to ask Peter, is there enough willingness in the Lord Jesus Christ to not just make but keep his disciples all along the way, even while they provoke him to his face, what would Peter have said to you? Peter denies him, later Christ restores him, and of course the rest of Peter's life is just sinlessly perfect. Well, not, of course it's not, but we know it's not, don't we? Book of Acts, uh, as the gospel is spreading, and then Paul talks about in Galatians, Paul goes to a town, and he's preaching, and Peter's there, and he's preaching, and they're bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, and as the Gentiles are hearing and they're being gathered, it's wonderful. Until the blue blood Jews, who also have embraced the gospel, these Jews, come and join the meeting. And when the proper Jew arrives at the church fellowship, Peter gets up and slinks over to the Jewish side and sits back down. Because he's grown up as a Jew thinking that even eating with a Gentile makes you ceremonially polluted. Now the gospel has clearly removed all that. And Paul is there and sees it. And knows that it's not just that Peter has friends. Hey, haven't seen you. He goes over. I'm going to go say hi to my friend. He knows that it's a statement about the efficiency of Christ. That he is not able to save the Gentile as fully as he saves a Jew. Because the Gentiles are still a little polluted. So Paul stands up and calls Peter out. And rebukes Peter. Paul, the hunter of Christians, now an apostle, rebukes the chief of the apostles. 
for his weak understanding of the gospel and his spiritual cowardice. But if you were to catch Peter after that, would Peter still say he is sufficient even when I provoke him? Do you remember the words to Peter in Matthew 18? Peter comes to him and says, if a person sins against us, I mean sins against us, and then sins against us again, and again, and again, and again, very same sin, again, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? That's pretty magnanimous. And of course Christ said, no, seven times seventy. Do you think Christ would give Peter a standard of willingness from love to pardon those who provoke you? Would he give Peter a higher standard than he himself keeps? Well, no. Let me give you two illustrations to help kind of drive this home. And one is taken from the picture in Micah 7. In Micah 7, toward the end of that chapter, the end of the book of Micah, we read these words. You've heard them before. Who is a God like you? Why is Micah shocked? Why does he say... God, there just isn't anybody like you. And then he gives his reason. Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. God pardons the sins of and passes over the rebellion of those people who are already his people. And yet they've still sinned. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you, God, will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Well, think of that, that simple illustration. Your sin, a sea of mercy. When you come to God after a thousand stumbles, a thousand unbelieving cold days, a, a thousand distracted, drifting days. And you come with a broken heart because you are a Christian and it, you're not okay with living like that anymore. And you come to him and you doubt that he would be willing, infinitely willing to pardon you. Maybe you think you have to kind of bargain with him still. God, I promise to do better here if you'll just forgive this one more time. And you realize that there's no hope there. You are cast upon his disposition. Is he disposed to pardon you again? And you think of the picture in Malachi 7. How big are your sins? A mountain? I mean, mountains are tall, but if you've been to mountains, you know they're not just tall, they're, they're wide. They're like, like a, it's a giant chunk of earth. It's like an island that someone's stuck on top of the earth. Like That thing is so big, it's not just tall. What if your sins were as high as the highest mountain, Everest? Well, I ask my good friend Google, how tall is Everest? 29,000 feet plus a little, 29,029 feet. That is five and a half miles almost high, above sea level. If you had Everest, that level of sin. Could God cast it into the earth's ocean and none of it stick up? None of it be there to embarrass you for the rest of your days? How deep is the ocean? Well, the Mariana Trench in West 
Pacific Ocean. At the end of the trench, there is a particularly deep place called the Challenger Deep. We've actually sent humans down there in, in their vehicle. It is 35,876 feet deep. Now, that's the deepest spot that we know of to date in the ocean. That is 6.8 miles, almost 7 miles deep. You could throw Everest into the Challenger Deep, and Everest would be over a mile under the water still. Do you think that the number and the offensiveness of your sins, which you can't calculate, are in some way greater than the infinite atoning death of the God-man and his infinite willingness to apply a steadfast love to you again so that you will be completed and you will arrive face to face with at that end, end of time with every other believer clothed in the perfections of Jesus you will see him face to face and the father will be presented the complete kingdom when Christ hands it to him including every single disciple that stumbled another illustration and this is from Cornelius Tyree. I mentioned his book on the glorious sufficiency of Christ. He gave this illustration. He talked about the fact that nations often give their uh, leaders the ability to pardon. So we have presidential pardons. We also have states give their leaders, the government, the ability to pardon. So a president can pardon a criminal, a guilty person. And they can be straight out guilty and the president can pardon them. And once the president has pardoned them, you cannot, the next president cannot reverse the pardon. Now, there are some limits to the presidential pardon. One limit is that he cannot pardon someone who's being impeached by the Congress. So you can't just overrule everything Congress said and said, well, I'm the next president, so he's fine. And you also, strangely, the president cannot pardon crimes against the state. That is left to the state. So the governor of Mississippi could pardon a criminal who has, has crimes against the state of Mississippi, but our president could not. Tyree doesn't talk about presidential pardon. He talks about, he's in the 1820s, so he talks about the pardon of a king who had just died, King George III of Great Britain, the king who lost the colonies. And through his stubbornness, you know, most historians would say, blew it so badly that, you know, now we're a separate nation. In the midst of the Revolutionary War, King George III magnanimously offered a proclamation of amnesty or of pardon or of, of you know, forgiveness to his enemies. Everyone who had taken up weapons against him in the colonial army to fight against his armies and his claims over us as king could be fully forgiven, no repercussions, if only you will lay your weapons down now and go home and return to your loyal, in your loyalty to your rightful king. Of course, we didn't do that. 
But do you know that there were exceptions too? When the proclamation was voiced in the colony uh, in Boston, the, the messenger of the king said this, I do hereby in his majesty's name offer and promise his most gracious pardon to all persons who shall forthwith lay down their arms and return to the duties of peaceable subjects, accepting or excluding only Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whose offenses are too monstrous of a nature to admit any other consideration than the appropriate punishment. You guys, you were you, you have so offended the king. The only thing ahead of you is punishment. When Christ offers pardon to us, is there an exception? When the gospel goes forward, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Repent, believe. Is there any? Has there ever been in the preaching of that gospel? throughout the first century or until today, a legitimate exception? Is there any specific name that we read of in the book of Acts that Jesus says, go and preach the gospel to the whole world. But every time you preach it, you do need to mention that so-and-so and so-and-so, Pilate, Herod, the chief priest, the high priest, the high priest's dad, who was really the ringleader, Right? Those soldiers that mocked me and beat me, the people that spit on me at the Jewish, uh, you know, kangaroo court. Now, read those names and say, everybody, except for these few, everybody can have full forgiveness for your crimes against the king. If you'll come to the king on the king's terms. Well, no, none of those names were listed. Any types of sinners mentioned? So not specific names. But think of 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Categories. So Paul obviously is warning the church and saying, you can talk about grace, but it, if it hasn't altered the way you live, and if you are still in this category, if this is the way you live, if that describes you, then you are not in Christ. And you cannot hope that there will be mercy. But this list was not read when the gospel was preached in Corinth. Go back to the book of Acts. Does Paul say, Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, except fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunks, revilers, swindlers. Well, of course he didn't. And we know because the very next verse he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. No individuals and no categories of sinner are excluded from the pardon declared from the throne of heaven if you will come to him on his gospel terms. John Newton, uh, sorry, not John Newton, John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote a book 
uh, in the last year of his life. He preached a series of sermons in 1688 and died that year. And those sermons were turned into a book. I don't know if he lived long enough to do it himself or if it's posthumously that they were put together. And the book is entitled, uh, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. If you want to read someone's books, who put, whose books will put to death the lies that God could not forgive a person like you, read Bunyan's books, The Acceptable Sacrifice, you know. I mean, there's just so many books that are all about the gospel. But this last one, particularly interesting. Why did he title, why did he pick that title? The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. Which Jerusalem Sinner? Well, he goes back to the Gospels where Christ says, after his resurrection, I'm going to go to the Father and you're going to be my witnesses. Begin in Jerusalem. Then Judea, Samaria, the world. Don't go to the world. Don't go to all the Jews. Don't go to Galilee. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to all Judea. Until you go to Jerusalem, you start with Jerusalem. Why is that significant? And Bunyan's whole book is written to show this. Christ, in his infinite willingness to pardon, sends the messengers of good news, the proclamation of divine amnesty. He sends the messengers first to the city where, the, where his murderers live, to tell his murderers that what has been accomplished on the cross can wash them of all their shame. And then Bunyan waxes eloquent. And he gives the picture of Peter preaching at Pentecost, where all those Jews are gathered. Now, there are Jews from around the world, but the Jerusalem Jews would certainly have been there. And you remember that at the crucifixion, it's as if the whole city turns out. Many of those people would have been people who had seen people healed by Jesus and heard his message. And still they cried out for his crucifixion. Or people who had loved ones who had been healed and still they're moved by the crowd and they cry out for crucifixion. How many people in the crowd, when all of Jerusalem goes, how many people had actually been healed and having received the mercy of God through a miraculous healing, when the, when the crowd gets whipped up, they join with them and say, yeah, yeah, put that guy to death. So as Peter's preaching, you know, he's interrupted the book of Acts. And they say, Peter, what, what can we do to be right with God? We killed the Messiah. And Peter says that they are to repent and believe, to be baptized Every one of them. And so Bunyan gets into this. You know, he takes license. And he imagines different people in the crowd. Who might find that hard to believe. One says to him. But Peter, I was one of them. That plotted. Secretly. As a leader of the Jews. To take away his life. Could I. Be forgiven. And Peter answers every one of you. And another objects, but I was one of those that cried out in the crowd, crucify him. I mocked his claims to be the king and said, if you're a king, why don't you come down? Would he be willing to forgive me? And Peter says, I am sent to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name to every one of you. And another one says, but I was one that spat on him. And another one stands in front and says, but I struck him in the face. I'm the one that put the crowns on him. 
I'm the one that gave him the bitter gall to drink when he was thirsty. Could he forgive people like us? And Peter says, every one of you. And then what about those that didn't do that? Peter, I knew better. I knew he was innocent. But in cowardice, I said nothing at that moment. And I joined the crowd and repeated with them, crucify him. Could he, could he forgive me? And Peter says, even you. When King George offers a royal pardon, two exceptions. When King Jesus offers a royal pardon, no exceptions. If you come to him according to his terms. And if you have any doubts, you could just go ask every believer at the end of time who was in Jerusalem, in that crowd, who at the end will be clothed with Christ's righteousness. And you will see that Jesus possesses an infinite willingness, a disposition to forgive the most offensive and not just once throughout their lives. I mentioned at the opening that it's harder for the Christian to believe this at times than it was when we very first came because now we see things differently. Eyes are open to the preciousness of Christ and that's the one I'm sinning against, to the perfections of his atonement and that's what I'm sinning against. I'm trampling it into the dirt. Sin is no longer a small matter to you. Every sin seen in a clearer light. The guilt of sin greatly enlarged, not just in your eyesight, but you understand that it's aggravated sin because of the cross. If you still think that Christ is willing to disciple you all the way to the end, even though you're imperfect, because now that the cross has occurred, sin is a smaller matter or a less provoking thing to Christ, you are mistaken. Sin is a greater provocation. It is a greater offense. It is a greater shame for the believer to sin against their elder brother than for the stranger to grace to sin against the king they reject. You fight against an almighty God that's no longer merely a creator, but also your father. You fight against every prompting of the Holy Spirit who through the word has shown us the emptiness of sin and the lies of the enemy and calling God a liar. We believe temptation again and we embrace what offends him and provocation after provocation, offense after offense begins to stack up in the history of a Christian life. Is he willing as well as able to forgive? Well, I'll close with a quote from one more Christian. Octavius Winslow, 1800s, preached the same time in England that Spurgeon did. This is what he said. Oh, the tenderness and the graciousness of the Lord's patience with his people. How patiently he bears with their ungrateful repining and their secret rebellions, their cold love, their cruel unbelief, their continual backsliding. Truly the patience of God after grace, after conversion, is greater than before grace. How this reality should subdue our rebellious spirits, break our hard hearts, and lead us in every fresh remembrance to the blood of Christ to wash in the fountain open for sin 
and uncleanness. And it does. And then it transforms us. And we'll talk about that next week. Is Christ sufficient, not just to pardon, but to make us look like him? Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen.